Hey there, this is Damien Blinkinsop with The Quantified Body. In this episode, we're introducing a topic for the first time that's going to come up a lot in the show because it's important. Micronutrient deficiencies. What are micronutrients? These are just the vitamins and the minerals that our bodies use to build different types of cells, enzymes, and other building blocks of what makes us us. Now, deficiencies in one or more of these translates to our bodies having difficulty building these blocks because they don't have the proper ingredients. So the end impact to us can really vary depending on which micronutrient we're talking about and which parts of us aren't getting built properly. It often means slower functioning or malfunctioning of bodily processes, and symptoms can be extremely varied, going from slight performance deficiencies to an increased risk of cancer. So it's a big deal. But testing for micronutrient deficiencies also isn't straightforward. It's a tricky business because of the way the body operates, making traditional measures like whole blood, plasma, or serum not necessarily accurate. Of all the common micronutrient deficiencies, one of the most common is magnesium. So the tracking we're going to look at in this episode is testing accurately for magnesium deficiency. And the tools we're going to be looking at are how to address deficiencies and effectively raise magnesium levels and optimize them. Today's guest is Carolyn Dean. She has 30 years experience in medicine and became known specifically for her work on how to test accurately for and fixing magnesium deficiencies. She's a medical director of the Nutritional Magnesium Association and president of Hallmark Dean Laboratory. She is the author of the Amazon number one bestseller in the vitamins and supplements category, The Magnesium Miracle, which describes the roles magnesium plays in the body the many commonly ignored signs of magnesium deficiency, and how to go about the tricky art of testing and treating magnesium deficiencies. I know this show can get pretty technical at times, and that's unavoidable. Our bodies are super complex, so we can't get around that. But to make this easier, we have extensive show notes, and we have summaries on the how-tos, the tracking, so the biomarkers and the labs, and the tools, how how we're going to change our biology. So to get those with the rest of the show notes, go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash episodes and pick out this episode from the list there. You can also get the show notes in your email inbox. For that, go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter, put your email in there and you'll get them every time a new episode comes out. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the Quantified Body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome, Damien. Good to be here. I always love to educate people about magnesium. Yeah, and the first time I came across magnesium as being something important for our health was your book. So thank you very much for putting that out there because it really was something that was a bit different. And um, I'm not sure how you first came upon all of this because you were sort of the first person to start talking about magnesium. So it'd be interesting just to see where did this all start and where did you decide to start focusing on magnesium and see it as something so important? How I became interested in magnesium, it it actually came to me. Random House, the publisher, wanted me to write a book on magnesium. And at the time, I I didn't think that you could find 300 pages to write on one mineral. But 
I was completely amazed. This was in the late 1990s, and I realized that I had magnesium deficiency symptoms of heart palpitations and leg cramps. So for me, it was very serendipitous and really helped my health. And uh, as it turns out, has helped the health of hundreds of thousands of people who've read the book. Yeah, that's great. It was very interesting. So why did uh, Random House decide that magnesium was something worth talking about? Well, one of their editors, I was told, had migraine headaches and found when she took some magnesium, they helped her migraines. And she was so amazed, she wanted more information. And, and as it turns out, it can help literally hundreds of symptoms and many dozens of conditions. So it is, it's quite an amazing mineral. And as you said, not many people know about it. Yeah, yeah. So what is the role of magnesium in the body? Why is it important? And basically, if, if a, min a deficiency in a mineral or a micronutrient, as we sometimes call them, is able to cause a lot of symptoms, it's because it's, it's taking on some important roles in the body. And then when it's lacking, you know, it's obviously giving us all these different symptoms. So what is the magnesium doing in our body? Why is it so important? Right. Well, you've laid it out quite well. Magnesium is necessary for the, the activation and function of between 700 and 800 different enzyme systems in the body. So it's catalyzing most chemical reactions in the body. It synthesizes protein, transmits nerve signals, relaxes muscles. And, and I should throw in here that calcium contracts muscles. And so they have a, a push-pull relationship, magnesium and calcium. And magnesium also produces and transports energy called ATP. And yet in, in medical school, we're just told that magnesium is a laxative. So uh, that's why I write the book and do a lot of interviews and a lot of papers to describe the importance of magnesium and to show people um, how they can improve their magnesium intake. Excellent. Interestingly enough, I've had uh, magnesium deficiency myself. I've had all the tests you recommend and everything. And um, also some additional tests relating to mitochondrial function. So you just mentioned ATP mm -hmm. and magnesium. And I had issues with my mitochondria and energy production, mm -hmm. uh, which caused all sorts of uh, symptoms. So my own personal story, I've come across this directly and it was coming across in, in those tests as well that I needed to build up my magnesium. So we can, we can talk a little bit later about how you get people's magnesium status to be raised mm -hmm. under these things. But certainly for me, it was and it still is something very important to maintain my health. So why is it that today there are many people, because it's touted as the second most common deficiency in terms of micronutrients in the Western world, why is it today that we have this issue where it is so deficient? Are there reasons that either our intake of magnesium has changed? Is it lower than historically? Or sometime, somehow is maybe the demands for magnesium higher? I think both um, contribute to the extreme magnesium deficiency to the point where 80% of the population is not getting even close to the recommended daily allowance of magnesium, number one, uh, there's very little magnesium in the soil anymore. So when a plant grows and it's supposed to pull up minerals into its tiny, tiny plant rootlets, if the minerals aren't there, the plant is not going to have minerals. I've had cases of people on these crazy 140 ounces of green drink a day, 
and they come to me with heart palpitations and leg cramps, two of the major symptoms of magnesium deficiency, and they can't believe it when I tell them they're magnesium deficient because they're eating all these these plants, all this greenery, and they go and get a blood test, and, and lo and behold, they're low in magnesium, and it's because even if they're eating organic plants, if the soil doesn't have magnesium, the plants aren't going to have magnesium. And number two, the demands for magnesium are much higher. I mean, I suppose there was always stress, of course, but now you see magnesium can be bumped away by medications that contain fluoride. The fluoride binds magnesium. Fluoridated and chlorinated water can bind up magnesium and make it unavailable. The diet, for example, with with sugars, it takes, um, what is it, 26 molecules of magnesium to metabolize one molecule of table sugar. The corollary there with fructose, it takes twice as much. So it's 52 molecules of magnesium required to metabolize one molecule of fructose. So people who turn to these high fructose corn syrup sweeteners and say, well, it's it's fruit sugar, they're actually in worse shape. They're using up more magnesium. So we're not getting it in our diet, and we continue to to dissolve it with our behavior and with the food, with alcohol, you drain it, coffee drains it. Even in the athletics, the sweating where we lose uh, sodium, we think, we're also losing magnesium. And when we just replace uh, with certain electrolyte products that are high in sugar and maybe high in sodium, we're not replacing magnesium and we're causing people actually to have blood sugar imbalances. You take an elite athlete and their intake of one of the, the major electrolyte products, they could be taking about 60 teaspoons of sugar a day which they're not able to metabolize, which ruins their magnesium balance, and they're sweating out their magnesium and not replacing it. Wow, that's a whole host of conditions. I guess one of the most interesting ones is uh, the soil, this input. Why is the soil so much lower in magnesium today? Is it because of overuse? We all hear about how we've been overusing the same amount of soil and the topsoil's disappearing steadily. Is that one of the main reasons? Yes, exactly, exactly. In ancient times, or even just a hundred years ago, they tell us uh, uh, that we could get about 500 milligrams of magnesium in our daily diet. Now we're lucky to get 200, and it's because the soil has been completely depleted of certain minerals like magnesium, and the farmers don't replace minerals. Even organic farmers, they don't necessarily put what we need, which is rock dust, on the soil. When hundreds of years ago, when the spring thaw would bring water down from the mountains, the water and the tumbling of the rocks and everything would create a high mineral content uh, water that would end up in the deltas, you know, before it landed in the ocean. And the plains around the the mouth of the rivers would flood. And in those plains with high mineral content water, they would grow the crops. Now, that's where everybody lives. And the farms have been relegated to places where they have to irrigate. But they just haven't put the minerals back in the soil. 
Right. Of course, and we're using recycled water, which hasn't gone through that whole natural process mm. of uh, micronutrient accumulation. It's very interesting. I think there's a business out there for someone, uh, agricultural organic crops with uh, micronutrients added. I don't know if it's possible. Have you seen that today? Does that exist somewhere? Yes, there's a great um, website called remineralize.org. And they do a lot of outreach and education about uh, uh, amending the soil with minerals, remineralize.org. People definitely know there's a problem. In my Magnesium um, Miracle book, right at the beginning, I could talk about a 1934 congressional committee that reported on the, the enormous deficiency of minerals and the soil that just led people to eat more and more food to try to get the nutrients they needed, which just ended up making people fat and um, mineral deficient. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Another interesting aspect uh, that you mentioned was the fact that some molecules that aren't natural to our body, uh, you brought up fluoride, actually bind to magnesium. And of course, there's a lot of fluoride around us in the water, the toothpaste, and so on today. Is that a very tight binding? Are they strongly attracted, those two molecules? Yes, very strongly. Um, they form a, a complex called chelate and um, is brittle. And the chelate, uh, this magnesium fluoride, it's insoluble. It replaces magnesium in bone and cartilage. And it can make bone prone to fracture. And what I found when I was doing the recent research for this third edition of Magnesium Miracle, 20% of our um, drug, uh, prescription drugs have added fluoride molecules. But those drugs are the, the majority of the commonly used drugs. You see, they added the fluoride molecules to drugs because it increases the drug's ability to dissolve in fats and therefore go across the fatty cell membranes, which means that get you know it can be um, built up in stronger levels in the cell. So anyway, what we've ended up doing is with seventy percent of Americans taking prescription drugs, we're giving them all this extra fluoride. It's binding up the, up the magnesium. And when you look at the side effects of the commonly used drugs, a lot of them are cardiovascular side effects. The highest amount of magnesium in the whole body is in the heart. So when you start to experience um, magnesium deficiency, you can start to get heart symptoms. Mine were the heart palpitations. And that's very common. And I won an award actually in 2012 from the Heart Rhythm Society for my work with magnesium on heart arrhythmias, but most doctors don't understand the magnesium picture because we did not learn about it in medical school. You were mentioning, and I know I'm jumping around here, but there's just so much to say. You were mentioning about the Krebs cycle, uh, the energy cycle but in the mitochondria, Six out of eight of the steps in the Krebs cycle require magnesium. So when anyone ever talks to me about a mitochondrial problem and they talk about all these esoteric supplements they're being told to take and that, oh, it's so dangerous, and all, it, you need a lot of magnesium mainly to get your Krebs cycle going. And so what happens with this vicious cycle of, of uh, fatigue in terms of magnesium deficiency occurring People go to doctors and they're, they're fatigued, their heart may be palpitating, they're under stress, their magnesium is deficient, so they may get high blood pressure. So 
so what happens is they they start in this round of medications. They're given a diuretic that drains out fluids, including magnesium. They're not even tested for magnesium, and we can get into that later, but there's a cycle of blood pressure medications, and then they come back, and all of a sudden, their blood sugar is elevated. Well, one of the signs of diabetes is low magnesium, and then their cholesterol is elevated. Well, the enzyme that helps balance cholesterol in the body requires magnesium, and if it's deficient, then your cholesterol level will go up. So we've got people on um, things like Prozac because they're fatigued and they're, they're not sleeping, so they appear depressed. Well, Prozac has three fluoride molecules. They're, get, uh, they're put on a cholesterol drugs. Lipitor has one fluoride molecule. They're put on antiarrhythmia drugs. One of them called flecainide has six fluoride molecules. And the irony of putting someone on a, an antiarrhythmia drug that actually binds incredible amounts of magnesium is incredible because even when you look at the side effects of flecainide, it's fast, irregular, pounding or racing heartbeat, shortness of breath and tightness in the chest. The nerves, um, you can have burning, crawling, itching, numbness, prickling, pins and needles, or tingling feelings and chest pain. All of those are magnesium deficiency side effects. Even the shortness of breath, when the smooth muscles in the bronchial tubes tighten up, because without magnesium, your muscles get tight because you have relatively more calcium. Calcium tightens muscles, magnesium relaxes them. So that's where you get all the the tightening in the heart muscles, tightening in the calf muscles. And then people think you have a heart problem, whereas you have a magnesium problem. Great, great, great review there. Just just for the people at home, you mentioned palpitations and arrhythmias a couple of times in kind of layman terms. How would you explain that to someone at home? Well, it would be your heart is, you don't even notice your heart beating, number one. That's normal. But when you start feeling your heart pounding or going fast. To me, that's magnesium deficiency until proven otherwise, unless you're, you know, you're running down the track or something. But uh, your heart starting to pound out of the blue, it can make people feel anxious for that to happen. And they can actually go into an anxiety attack. Anxiety itself can be a magnesium deficiency. And then your heart can sort of pound along and then stop for an instant and then resume again. Well, that's a skipped beat. And when that happens more frequently, then it's called an arrhythmia or a heart palpitation. When I used to get my my little uh, run of abnormal beats, it would make me have a little cough. I'd just cough as my body tried to readdress the rhythm. And it's mainly that the heart has several pacemakers. The natural pacemaker of the heart keeps the steady beat. If and when the heart muscle is in tension from magnesium deficiency or it's damaged by a heart attack, then the accessory pacemakers of the heart can be pulled on or tweaked and they can start firing out um, beats uh, inappropriately, and that is an irregular rhythm that's created. Great. Thank you very much for that. It helps clarify it. So have we covered all of the symptoms for people at home, if they're asking themselves the question right now, oh, do I have a magnesium hmm. deficiency and how serious is it? 
potentially? Right. I can quickly run through a leucemia because um, even even when I say, well, anything that can tighten a muscle can be a symptom. And you see, that can be acid reflux. If your stomach is in a spasm, you can push stomach contents up and give yourself some heartburn. The angina, I talked about, that's um, angina is the heart muscle going into spasm. Anxiety, high blood pressure, cholesterol elevation, we mentioned constipation where the muscles of the intestines are kind of tightened in spasm and they won't push along your intestinal contents. Depression, diabetes, fibromyalgia, that's um, a huge magnesium deficiency problem. There are other things involved, but that's where we start. Headaches and migraines, I've mentioned. Even irritable bowel syndrome, where you have these incredible abdominal pains and either constipation or diarrhea, any sort of inflammation, insomnia. I tell people if if you have insomnia, then you should take magnesium. If you don't think it's working, take more magnesium. Kidney stones, any sort of nerve twitching, PMS, seizures, a lot of um, birth problems like um, eclampsia in women, that's a magnesium deficiency symptom. I have in my uh, blogs and in my books, I've put down a hundred factors that where you can gauge your magnesium deficiency. And, you know, we've gone over a couple like alcohol intake. If you're angry, you could be magnesium deficient. If you have any sort of brain trauma, the first thing a person needs to do is get, have a magnesium intravenous, but not a lot of doctors understand that or realize it. If you're eating a junk food diet, you're making yourself magnesium deficient. Even infertility, if the fallopian tubes are are in spasm, then they won't allow the sperm to go along um, the fallopian tube up to the ovary. Right. So a lot of, like, it comes across that really there's a lot of bits of your body which can malfunction if they don't get the magnesium, and that's basically what's going on. They're not functioning optimally, and it's causing spasms and different things like this. Just out of interest, I know my friends and I growing up, because we grew up in the coffee-stimulated management consulting area, we used to get a lot of pains in our chest. I was just wondering, as you said earlier, could it have been coffee-induced magnesium pain, or is that, was that just something completely different? It's quite possible, because um, if the chest muscles, it doesn't have to be hard, but uh, the lungs, even the muscles around the ribs can go into spasm from magnesium deficiency. my uh, case, it was leg cramps. I have big uh, calf muscles from dancing when I was younger, so it would hit me in my calves. And everybody's different. Some people are typing a lot. They'll say they're getting what is that carpal tunnel, and often that can be a magnesium deficiency. Right. So it can depend where you're basically using your body the most, because then obviously, you know, the magnesium is getting exhausted to a, a, mm-hmm. a worse extent in that part of the body, in that area. So are there severities, I guess, like if you continue to be magnesium deficiency, you'll get more and more symptoms? Is that something you've seen in your practice? Right. Yes. So when you were saying that, I thought, you see, different people will experience it in different areas. I mean, why would one person get migraine headaches and another person get chest pain, another person asthma, another person leg cramps? So it can be your vulnerable area. And then what happens, it just seems to escalate where you start having different body parts affected, where 
by the time people get to me, they have insomnia, they have anxiety attacks, they have a regular heartbeat, they'll get migraine headaches. So when you go to a doctor and you have that whole list, you're, you're off to see half a dozen different specialists and, and nobody puts it together that it's all one thing, magnesium deficiency. Great. So do you understand the mechanism behind the headaches? Is it because there's too much calcium versus magnesium in the brain and that's causing damage or how does that work? It can do. When I, I go into that in the book, I have a whole chapter on headaches and it can be muscle tension and spasm in the neck and head muscles. I mean, that's sort of a common one. But it can also be um, with migraines, a serotonin imbalance because serotonin, the feel-good the neurotransmitter is magnesium deficient deficient, dependent. So if you have a deficiency, it can result in headache, migraines, and depression. So there's lots of reasons for a person to get headaches. And it can be injury. I remember a patient of mine, she was hit with a baseball bat in the head when she was young, and she began to get headaches. Well, 20 years later, the doctors wouldn't believe that a baseball bat to the head could still be bothering her. But what had happened is the, the muscles in the scalp will just clamp down and create this chronic tension and pain. Okay, so we've talked a lot about basically negative health, right? Chronic health conditions. So uh, being normal, like less than normal, basically. Now, in terms of performance, have you looked at all into the impacts? Have you had come across people who their performance has been impacted, whether it's by uh, cognitive performance, athletic performance? Absolutely, absolutely. I've had a couple of um, former NFL players who've uh, had to quit the sport because of extremely severe muscle cramping and then come to find out many years later that it was magnesium deficiency. Wow. Cause, um, so their career is finished oh, because totally. of magnesium yeah. deficiency. I mean, you, and it could have been fixed. Right. You look at um, Colby Bryant in the, what was it, the first game of the NBA Finals. He was taken off um, uh, with muscle spasms. So I wrote a big uh, article about Kobe Bryant has a magnesium deficiency. And that's where I was uh, quoting uh, earlier about the, when you take these electrolytes, um, you're just getting sugar and sodium back. But anyway, yes, uh, players can be you know, very much affected in uh, any sort of team sport that, where you're sweating a lot. I've had a lot of teen athletes whose parents have come to me for guidance and how to get over their, their spasms, and it's, it's um, increasing their hydration, putting sea salt in the water, getting um, liquid magnesium and liquid um, multiple minerals into water, and um, it, that is all that it takes to turn them around and, and keep them in the game. That's great to hear that. Uh, it's really bad news for the for the guys who quit the game just for magnesium deficiency. It's unfortunate that things weren't known back then. So we've talked a lot about the symptoms now, so people could have an idea if it's a possibility. But if we really want to know, I guess so the first thing people do is they go to a doctor and they get their magnesium tested. And the standard, what is the standard way of testing that if you go to your doctor, he's going to test for you in terms of labs? Right. Um, unfortunately, it's a blood serum magnesium 
and the serum, it only has about 1% of the total body magnesium. So it's the wrong measurement. It's the wrong dipstick to put your needle in into because you're not getting any accuracy in that test. Uh, I've been um, recommending people get the red blood cell magnesium test. You can even go online and get it yourself if your doctor doesn't know about it. And I tell people to go to their doctor and keep asking and asking for the red blood cell magnesium test. I would love to see the ionized magnesium test because that is the gold standard and it's still in in the research stages, but one of my articles um, online about kidney disease and magnesium, magnesium researcher worked with a kidney researcher, and they found that people with chronic kidney disease of all varieties have the highest levels of serum magnesium, but in that same sample, the lowest levels of ionized magnesium. So in the serum, it's looking high, because you see the serum has to perfuse the heart. So the serum magnesium is always going to be in this very narrow range, and it's always going to look pretty normal unless you're really far gone because it has to keep the heart perfused. So it will take extra magnesium out of your bones and muscles as needed. So every time you measure the serum magnesium, it's going to look normal. And doctors have gotten to the point of saying, well, you know, we don't bother testing magnesium because it always looks normal. And you will notice in in any electrolyte panel you've ever gotten, there's never a magnesium level. It's calcium and sodium and chloride, but never magnesium. So... I'm pushing for the ionized magnesium. In the meantime, I do the magnesium RBC blood test. But Damien, it's so crazy out there. The range for the magnesium red blood cell test, it used to be uh, 4.2 to 6.8. And one year later, it's 3.8 to 6.0 because the population is getting more and more deficient in magnesium. And what a blood range is, is just the average population that the lab serves. They don't look at the optimums. They just look at what's out there. So I have to educate people, okay, right, It um, the range may say 3.8 to 6.0, but we want you to be 6.0 or even higher. I to tell people with the old range up to, you know, it would go up to 6.8. I said, I want you to be 6.0 to 6.5. But it's a huge educational leap to say to people, well, you want to be higher than the range. It's all marked, you know, with red flags and everything that it's too high. So it's a huge educational challenge to make doctors and the public understand that they really are very deficient in magnesium and, and need to take it. Anyway, I'm... I'm, (laughs) This is a big problem with many labs. I mean, it's the fault of the labs as well, that they're normalizing based on the population instead of studies aimed at optimum levels, healthy levels. Uh, What they tend to do is just a normal curve of what they receive in the door. And then they say you're in the middle, even if, as we're saying, 80% of the population is deficient. So clearly the average is going to be far, far from optimum in this case. There's many tests for it in this case. So it, it's just like, even if you're getting test backs from labs, you should check what is the reality of benchmarks. And that's why I wanted you to um, talk about that a bit. So what, what units of measurement are the RBC magnesium? 
the measurements of the RBC magnesium, how do you mean the average range? I just mentioned it. How are they measuring it? In Just in case like different labs use different units. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Milligrams per deciliter. Okay, great. Yeah. And so you're saying six or above is, is what you should, it's optimum. should be aiming I for? I use the word optimum. Yeah. Is there any case where you could have too high magnesium? Well, um, when I've seen, I think it's twice out of the hundreds I've seen, it's been a bit over the over the range. And then when I ask the person, they've taken magnesium the morning of the test. And in terms of having too much magnesium, the body does have a fail-safe for magnesium where it will give you the laxative effect if it's got too much uh, either at that point in time or just too much in general. But um, no other mineral has that fail-safe in the same way. So I consider magnesium an extremely safe mineral. Great, great. And you've just kind of dropped another little um, gold tip there, which is don't take magnesium before your RBC magnesium test. If you want to get a realistic value there, which goes for, you know, it goes for most things we're testing. Make sure you're not interfering with the test results. So the other test you mentioned was ionized uh, magnesium, and you say that's better. What are the issues with the RBC magnesium first? Well, the RBC magnesium tests what's in the red blood cells, and that is a different entity than a tissue cell or a muscle cell. So it, it may give, and I, I don't know, I'm just making this uh, assumption that maybe it's uh, 40 or 50% accurate, whereas the sear magnesium test, it's only measuring 1% of your total body magnesium. You see, there has not even been enough research comparing them all. This anecdotal study I'm talking about with the magnesium researcher and the kidney researcher and finding that um, kidney patients had high levels of sear magnesium. So you see, they'd be warned to t not take magnesium. Oh, it's, you know, it's going to be too high. Whereas um, that same sample had low levels of ionized magnesium. So they had magnesium in their blood, but not in their cells. And then the study went on to give people a liquid magnesium uh, that was ionized, it went into their cells, and their health improved. These kidney patients actually got better. So when the magnesium researcher asked if the kidney specialist would write about these amazing findings, he said he couldn't because it was so well known that magnesium can't be taken in kidney disease. So we've got another instance where uh, people aren't being given information because it goes against the grain of what uh, doctors have learned all these decades. Right, right. So is this ionized magnesium test available with many labs? or No, it's only about, uh, at last count, 125 labs out of the 5,000 in the U.S., and they're all in um, research institutions, as I understand it. So that's not LabCorp or Quest, which are the typical ones people go to? No, they wouldn't have it. I mean, you're lucky to educate them about magnesium RBC tests. I, I tell people to go to an um, online site called requestatest.com. And without a doctor's prescription, you can order your own blood test, which I think is fabulous. And then people can follow their magnesium. And uh, it, the price of it is often less than the copay. You'd have to pay your doctor to go in and get a, a prescription. Right. Because when you, we order directly, we can't get insurance to cover it? I don't 
don't know about that. I just talk about the copay in the sense, well, insurance doesn't cover your copay, so people make up their own mind. But I do ask people to to talk to their doctors about it, just to educate the doctors, because doctors don't even know about it. Mm-hmm. So, well, it sounds like the ionized magnesium test is pretty hard to get at. Maybe uh, if we're a typical citizen, we can't actually get access to it right now. Or is there one lab that we can get it from, perhaps with a prescription? There isn't right now. No. Okay, great. No. Well, not great, but uh, it's good to have the clarity on that. Um, hope it's coming soon. The other test I heard you mention in the past, maybe you've kind of dropped it now, is Exotest, where you have the, the scraping of the, the inner cheek to see what is in the the biosample. Is that something you don't recommend now? Well, it is a very good test. You can measure more than the magnesium. It's getting right into the tissue cell. So I think it is more accurate than the magnesium RBC, but it's very expensive. It's hundreds of dollars. However, insurance does cover it. And then there's another, however, you have to get a practitioner to do the scraping. So you have to pay for an office visit to get it. Right. So it, it's so it's, uh, it's inconvenient. Basically. Inconvenient. And, that's the word. Right. 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 So you were just saying like people should get RBC magnesium. I got my RBC magnesium done. I haven't done the exit test. Okay. Probably for those reasons. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was the easiest one to get set up. Mm-hmm. Um, the exit test was just a bit. And it's quite a lot of money considering... If you've already decided to supplement with magnesium, because say you've got a few supplements, you've got a few symptoms, then thinking about it, like, well, what's the cost benefit of me doing the exit test versus the RBC? Because I mean, a nice thing is you can trend the RBC and if it's going upwards, then you should be making improvements. Is that an assumption you could make? Oh, yes. I see that all the time, people improving. And when they don't, then I just have a conversation about, well, are you taking medications? Yes, usually. Are you under more stress? Yes. Are you taking your sea salt and water? No. I mean, I have a blog called um, When Magnesium Makes Me Worse, and I go through the, this sort of thing where people will start taking magnesium and they'll feel better, and then and then they say, well, it's not helping anymore, and it's often because the, they're not taking enough. It's a, when you're starting to wake up seven to 800 different enzyme systems in the body, your body is crying out for more and more and more. And it doesn't go on forever. You certainly come to a, a point where you have a daily requirement. And in fact, as you build up your stores, you need less magnesium as time goes on. So in the beginning, you really, in my opinion, you have to go slowly into magnesium because it can actually help detoxify the cells, detoxify the liver. So I tell people to go slowly and steadily and increase as they either watch their symptoms or watch the magnesium RBC test. I only started really pushing the magnesium RBC test because I put it in my book. I don't know the people who are taking magnesium. They're not my patients. So I'm just trying to be very cautious and be kind of scientific about it, especially with people on a half a dozen medications. And then they're saying, well, is the magnesium going to be dangerous? And I'd like to say to them, well, did you ask that question about your six medications? Because if you're on medication and you start taking magnesium, 
for magnesium deficiency symptoms, you're not going to need as much medication. The medication might start to appear uh, toxic, and then you're going to say, oh, the magnesium is making me sick, whereas it's your body is trying to get rid of the drugs. So it's an education. That's why I've written so much about it, because uh, we're in the situation now, as I mentioned, with you have a little bit of high blood pressure and all of a sudden you're on six medications and that's going to start really depleting your magnesium. There's some very good points on how you have to basically take a personal approach to this and consider all the factors in your life. So it's difficult for someone like you who's written a book trying to address the general population to just say, everyone do this. It's not that. But I guess having a you know an RBC magnesium test and, and judging by your symptoms... You can make a start of understanding where you're at and what could be necessary. So what kinds of um, things do you recommend to increase our, our magnesium? You've mentioned sea salt. Is that Himalayan salt? Is that just natural sea salt? Himalayan is good. Celtic salt. Yes, with, um, with the stress that people are, are under and the stress that makes them lose magnesium, you're also losing sodium. And um, I tell people that sea salt, it, it has the sodium. It, it has some magnesium and a bit of calcium, but not that much. It, but it does have 72 minerals. So there are tiny amounts of minerals that we may not even know we're lacking. I have people on sea salt and overnight they'll say they're not getting up to go to the bathroom. They're retaining their fluid in their cells more than it just running through them. And Um, claim all kinds of benefits. So it's a great start in terms of water intake. I tell people to take half their body weight measured in pounds, take half that weight in ounces of water a day. With all the filtering and reverse osmosis, even distilled water out there, people are not getting minerals from their liquids anymore. So I have the sea salt, and of course people will say, no, my doctor told me not to take salt because of my blood pressure. Well, table salt is just sodium chloride, and that is almost like a drug. We're not talking about sodium chloride. We're talking about sea salt, which has 72 minerals. Right, right. And then he, the rock salts as well. They're, they're balanced, basically, instead of being concentrated, man-made, synthetic. Mm-hmm. That's why you're saying it's a drug, because it's this refined compound, which I guess you could, you know, you can compare to refined food, which often doesn't have positive impacts on us either, because it's unbalanced at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So in terms of athletes, you also mentioned that they have issues with electrolyte drinks. Are there any electrolyte drinks out there which have a more balanced profile? I have not found one yet. I mean, I'm working on an electrolyte liquid myself, but we don't have to go there because I I just couldn't find anything out in the commercial world that wasn't loaded with sugar and sodium. Right, right. So uh, in terms of are there foods we should be eating or personally, I use transdermal magnesium oil, magnesium chloride oil from some of the seas. So it's supposedly pure. Could you talk a little bit about that? Is that one of the better methods to raise your levels? It is a good method. When you put magnesium on your skin, you're actually stimulating the DHEA receptors in your body, so it helps your hormone balance. Some people, uh, myself, uh, before I got into my liquid magnesium, I had used so much magnesium oil on my skin, it became irritating. So Some people have to dilute it with distilled water. All magnesium oil is supersaturated magnesium chloride in distilled water. And the transdermal approach, that was started 
centuries ago probably with Epsom salts baths where the midwives would use it for all their pregnant um, patients. And what you do is put one or two cups in a medium hot bath and soak for about 20 or 30 minutes. And you can begin to see the effects of magnesium uh, immediately just by doing these baths. And it's a way for people to sort of get introduced to magnesium because, like I said, they may be on half a dozen drugs and be afraid to do anything that, that their doctor doesn't recommend. So you do the Epsom salts, you feel better, and then you may feel like going to a transdermal magnesium oil or some of the oral magnesiums. And in terms of the most common and the cheapest magnesium is actually the least well-absorbed. And this is where magnesium will get its uh, reputation for just being a laxative because the magnesium oxide is only 4% absorbed. And that means the other 96% will find its way into the intestines and, and cause diarrhea. Now, that's okay for for a certain percentage of the population who's constipated, but you do have to be careful to um, to not create the laxative too much of a laxative effect. That's interesting. So if you are magnesium deficient and you're taking a supplement, um, I don't know which ones you'd recommend, but I don't know magnesium glycinate. There's many different varieties of. There might be a more bioavailable one you would recommend. But if it's getting absorbed into your body, then it won't produce the laxative effect. So. Is that really based on the economic ones? Right. Correct. That's interesting because <laughs> I actually had that problem where I was trying to induce, uh, and obviously I had the wrong type because I had the bioavailable type and wasn't aware of this connection because it never induced the uh, laxative effect I was looking for at the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, the way around the laxative effect too, there there are forms, uh, you, people can check on my website under resources for the different forms or I've written, written about them, but um you can take, for example, a magnesium citrate powder and put it in a liter of water and shake it up and just sip it through the day. If you take small amounts of magnesium through the day, then it will gradually get into the cells and won't build up. But if you take um, two or three teaspoons of a magnesium citrate powder all at once, then you could overwhelm the cell's ability to absorb and then it runs out the other end. So... And and that's a waste, both a waste of money, and also you could be pulling out other nutrients when you have diarrhea. Yeah, yeah, that's key. In, in terms of foods, are there higher magnesium foods which you recommend people start to incorporate into their diets? Right, there are, but I've already had the caveat about if they're grown on mineral uh, depleted soil, it's hard to say, but seaweeds are, are high magnesium. In, in the ocean, there's three times the magnesium compared to calcium. So there's a lot in seaweeds and chocolate. Uh, 100% cacao is high in magnesium. That's why some women especially have chocolate cravings before their period because they're craving magnesium. There's um, different herbs. I, I have it in my uh, book, Purslane, for example, is a very high magnesium. Again, if the soil is high, uh, cilantro is high in magnesium. Nuts and seeds, deep green leafy vegetables, some grains. But again, I always have to hesitate and say, but if the soil is depleted, I can't, I can't confirm. But I do know food has a big impact. For example, 
I'm telling people not to take calcium supplements, but get your calcium in your diet, but get your magnesium in a supplement. And calcium, for example, we're told that we need 1,200, 1,500 milligrams, whereas in the UK and the World Health Organization, they're only saying 500 to 700 milligrams of calcium. Well, if you look at a cup of yogurt, that's about 300 milligrams of calcium right there. I've done experiments with myself, and I find if I have two or three cups of yogurt in a day, I actually start getting a bit of heart palpitation and leg cramps because it's really pushed on um, my magnesium. It's kind of bound up my magnesium. So I know that you can get your calcium from your diet just by looking at some food lists. I have a couple of free eBooks that people can get on my website, and and you can figure out if you're getting enough calcium in your diet, usually from dairy or bone broth or fish with bones. But with magnesium, you have to be very, very wary that you're probably only going to get about 200, maximum 300 milligrams. And I'm recommending people get about 700 milligrams equal amounts of calcium and magnesium. Great. We'll put links to all of these things you mentioned in the show notes so that people can find them, the free ebooks, and you mentioned something else earlier Mm. about some of the tests. Make it easy for people to find. Thank you for all those clarifications. It really sounds like we shouldn't really trust the food and and go to supplementation route. And you brought up magnesium citrate. Is that your preferred supplement? It's one of them. I have my own product, but again, this is not a commercial uh, broadcast, so People can search mm. sites. But do for, feel free to point out any... Is there something specific you've done with your well, product that you feel it's better? Well, what happened with me, Damien, is I, I couldn't get enough magnesium therapeutically without stimulating my intestines and getting the laxative effect. What I did was work with a chemist to create a magnesium that is absorbed 100% at cellular level and does not cause a laxative effect. So that people, even I've had people who've been forced to live on um, IV magnesium drips where three or four times a week they have to take an IV drip or their levels become so low they develop heart symptoms and cramping. And they can switch from IV onto a good magnesium that's absorbed fully. And that's what we've been lacking. Um, All the research in, in medicine is in drugs and we haven't had enough research in in these, um, the supplementation that people absolutely require. I mean, the other thing I'm working on is the balance of the other minerals. I've found uh, that the thyroid requires nine minerals to make the hormones properly. And instead of using mineral supplementation of, of a type of mineral that can be absorbed fully into the cells, doctors wait until the thyroid is sort of barely functioning and then give thyroid hormone replacement, either a synthetic or a natural, and then the natural doesn't make that much difference if you consider that what the thyroid really needs is its nine minerals to create its own hormones. Yeah. I mean, this is a really recurring theme on this podcast is micronutrient deficiencies across the board are causing many symptoms. So I think it's really something people need to think about in terms of their diet and supplementation, trying to maximize how many of these micronutrients they're getting into into them and testing where possible. So if someone has a deficiency, how long does it take to resolve that if you know they're implementing the types of recommendations you've just announced? 
And how often do you think they should get tested if they're doing RBC magnesium testing, trying to figure out how close they're getting to six? Right. I mean, there's such a range, but I get a lot of emails. I have a radio show, too, so people call in. So in people who have what I would consider minor symptoms, I mean, they can lose those symptoms overnight. They can be sleeping the first night. But then the people I get in my consulting practice, I, I do telephone consultations, they'll be the ones on half a dozen medications and sick for 40 years. And they'll start um, feeling symptomatically better you know, within a week, but then it's going to be probably several months before they're completely symptom-free. The way nutrients are approached in our society is as if they're drugs. And some people will say, well, I've been taking magnesium for two weeks and, and I had another heart palpitation. Why is that? <laughs> and it's because magnesium is not suppressing your palpitations. It's actually trying to heal your muscles and you're building up your magnesium stores. And when I get the story, it's like, well, yes, I forgot to take a couple of doses. I know, yes, I had a lot of sugar or had some alcohol. Or There's a balance when you're taking nutrients. You want, the, you want your nutrients to be absorbed, so you want really high-quality nutrients, and you want the basic nutrients. I have people coming to me who are on dozens and dozens of different supplements where they read about, oh, this is important. If you don't get it, you'll surely die. So the, the advertising for supplements has gotten people so scared that they think they have to take everything. And they end up actually coming to me with stomach distress because, because they're swallowing all these pills. <laughs> Right. And as you mentioned, there's ratios involved with many of these uh, calcium to magnesium ratio, to zinc to copper ratios. And in some cases, it's actually the ratio that's really, really significant as well. One of the first uh, episodes we had on here was talking about zinc and copper imbalances and how they can actually create anxieties and all sorts of conditions in the brain. So we've covered that from a different aspect, but you know, the ratios are, you know, could be very important too. So supplementing just one single nutrient can be a problem also. Have you ever come across anyone supplementing magnesium who get problems with calcium balance? In the past number of years, I think I've had two people where they've just thought that the, the magnesium was all they needed and took higher and higher and higher amounts. And I don't know if we proved that it, there was a calcium problem. Certainly when they did their blood tests, their calcium levels were not low on their blood tests. But... Um, that's where in my writing, I make sure people are getting their 700 milligrams of calcium every day in their diet. And if not, to take a, a well-absorbed calcium supplement. I think I'm going to have to work on, um, they're called picometer minerals. Picometer is the, like a trillionth of a meter. So that's the size of the minerals I work with. And that is actually the mineral ion channel size in the cells. And it's actually the diameter of the plant rootlets, picometer. So what's supposed to happen is the soil is supposed to be flush with worms and organisms that break down the minerals to a picometer size. The plant rootlets absorb them into the plants. And then we eat the plants and we get our minerals. And it's all supposed to go brilliantly like that. And we've stopped that from happening. It's not occurring anymore because uh, 
the soils are so dead. I mean, we didn't even talk about the the different herbicides and pesticides that actually bind up minerals. The Roundup Ready by Monsanto, it binds up mag- 50% of magnesium even in the soil, and it has a half-life of 23 years. Yeah, <laughs> what we are doing these days is pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. We'll look back on it. <laughs> I'd like to thank you very much for your time today. I'd, I'd really like to um, wind down the interview with a few slightly different questions about you and your ideas about uh, the world of health. First of all, are there other people besides yourself that you recommend to, to go for advice and insights on areas around health or testing or any of these types of areas we've discussed today? Well, hmm. When people um, come to me, for example, with cancer, I don't treat cancer. I've studied something called total biology. Have you heard of German New Medicine or total biology, Damien? No, I haven't. It's the conflict uh, basis of disease where a conflict in somebody's brain, a worry, an unsolvable problem can actually be downloaded in the body as a physical symptom. Like if if you've got a boss who makes you sick to your stomach, then you can develop a stomach ulcer. Or if somebody's a pain in the neck, then you can get neck pain. So, you know, there's uh, simple comparisons like that. But an unsolvable conflict can often put itself into the body. And unless we deal with the conflict, then... Physical medicine really won't be able to completely solve the problem. So beyond what I do in in my books and my products and my website, I have a two-year online wellness program. I really don't know that anybody is covering the waterfront in the way I do, but, you know, I'll refer out to people for the total biology as that aspect of the psychology and physiology of the body that was never addressed in in either allopathic or even my naturopathic training so far. Great, great. Thank you very much. Are there biomarkers or labs that you track on a routine basis to monitor or improve your health, longevity, or no. these kind of concerns? No. Nope, nothing you look at. Okay, great. No. <laughs> what would be your one biggest recommendation to people for health, longevity, and performance? It would have to be magnesium, really, seriously. When you look at the products that some of the doctors have these days, and I must say I've been at this over 40 years, and it's only in the past year or so, I've decided that I had to get into products because the ones I needed for myself weren't available, and people were getting so desperate. I mean, I spent two years creating an a two-year online wellness program for people because I wanted to educate them, give them all the information I knew. People don't have time to do a two-year course. (laughs) They're desperate. They want something now. And so what I realized when I look at a lot of the supplements that, that, you know, medical doctors are selling, you can't even find magnesium in their products. And so that's where I really come back to start with magnesium. It works on, you know, the seven, eight hundred different enzyme systems. It supports the energy of your body. It helps you sleep. It gives you energy during the day and it relaxes you enough to help you sleep at night. So it really is the, the one supplement that everybody should take. Thank you very much for that. So in terms of uh, people connecting with you, you just mentioned that you have a radio show. I think it's also a podcast, correct? 
Yes, yes, you're right. We did podcast it. Yes, people can just go to drcarolindean.com and I have a little radio on the side where people can click on about my radio show. I I do um, blogs uh, periodically. I used to do them more frequently, but everything really slows down in December when we're, we're doing this taping. So drcarolindean.com, you see my wellness program. I have a free online newsletter. A couple of my products are listed there, and that takes you to a website. And actually, under the wellness program, people can um, pick up two free ebooks on minerals, Right there, PDF uh, format under my wellness program. Great. And of course, your book is called The Magnesium Miracle, and it's in its third edition, I believe? That's right, the 2014 edition, and it's uh, on Amazon. And uh, actually, um, Amazon is doing a great job now. I heard they're doing same-day delivery in some major centers. It's amazing. Yeah, they are. (laughs) I mean, I use Amazon Every single day, it's crazy. I got if you got the iPhone app for Amazon, it's dangerous. Oh yeah, um, right. And and you lose uses the Amazon lockers. You can get stuff literally shipped next to a Seven Eleven next to you. But, um, but then crazy. even worse is having a Kindle where you can you can order the next book in a series. You know, while you're lying in the bathtub, uh, they're making a mint on Kindle because you know you can't lend them. So everybody has to buy a new Kindle, whereas with books, you could lend them all over the place. Yeah, that's, that's, that's true. <laughs> I'm not complaining. I love Amazon. Yeah, it makes it everything very convenient. So, Carolyn, uh, thank you so much. Oh, of course, we'll put those references you just spoke about in the show notes so people mm. will be able to find you easily. Yeah, thank you. But thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you, especially after having read your books so long ago and mm. been using magnesium as a result for these many years. So thank you very much for your time and great to connect with you. Thank you, Damien. Good interview. Great questions. I enjoyed it. A lot of information out there, and I appreciate being able to do that. So thank you. As you may have realized, I've quantified a lot of my body. In most episodes, we focus on one or more biomarkers, and I've already had these tracked in the past, or nearly always get them done after I've interviewed the guest. Beyond the fact that I just geek out on this stuff and I love to optimize every aspect of my biology, I really want to make this a practical tool for you. So I'm going to be giving you my marker results with some commentary at the end of each show. In this episode with Caroline, the most practical marker to assess your magnesium status was the magnesium RBC, red blood cell uh, blood lab. I got this checked in March 2014 and my result came back within the lab reference range at 5.4 milligrams per deciliter. Now the lab reference range from LabCorp, LabCorp is one of the the main labs in the US. They've standardized their lab range across the whole population that gets tested with them, which is pretty large given they cover the whole US. Their reference range is 4.2 to 6.8 milligrams per deciliter. So it looks like I'm kind of smack in the middle. But as Caroline's work suggests, The population as a whole is magnesium deficient, so the normal curve of that reference range, the one that LabCorp sees, and the data that they get, doesn't reflect the optimum at all. In fact, I've cross-checked this with labs from a different source, with a different perspective, which reveals that I'm deficient in some aspects of my body. So I'll get into that in a minute. So what I'm aiming for as a target 
or the magnesium RBC is seven milligrams per deciliter. That's where I'd like to see mine next time I get tested. And I'll get tested once a year until as I'm optimizing just to get it into that range and to keep it there. What I do to increase my magnesium levels is use transdermal magnesium chloride spray. So this is just liquid magnesium basically and it's in a, it's in a bottle and you can spray it on your body and it's absorbed by your skin. So I keep a bottle of this liquid magnesium solution in the bathroom and when I come out of the shower in the morning and the evening, I'll just spray it on. It's pretty simple. I don't really think about it. I've been doing this for a couple of years now uh, since I discovered that I was magnesium deficient, a bit more, nearly three years, and it's certainly increased my levels, but I have a little way to go. So I'll put a link to the spray in the show notes that I use. Like my personal concern in selecting a spray, a magnesium source, was that it was pure and it didn't contain any contaminants. So I wanted to make sure that it didn't have, I wasn't putting anything else in my body that I didn't want. The way I first became aware of my magnesium deficiency was actually through looking at my mitochondrial function. But you probably realized I'm a bit obsessed about mitochondria because energy is everything when it comes to life. So looking at mitochondrial function is really important for every aspect of your body. And, you know, we've looked at that several times in the show. I've had that looked at from uh, different perspectives. And this particular test showed that my ATP, my adenosine triphosphate, which are the energy molecules created by mitochondria and we use for energy, these had low levels of magnesium. So often in our bodies, we have inactive and active forms of the molecules we use. Right, so you have free testosterone, for example, and you have testosterone. It's actually the free testosterone that actually has the active effect. That's something that a lot of people are aware of. So that's why I give that example. Um, in the case of ATP, the active form is actually magnesium ATP. It has magnesium bound to it to be active. So my ATP to ATP magnesium ratio, so ATP without magnesium to ATP magnesium ratio, was much lower than it should be. Uh, showing poor mitochondrial function. I've improved this substantially with the transdermal magnesium oil, which I've been using for two plus years. And the ratio should typically be like 0.65. And I started at 0.48, which was really, really poor. And that the, my last test in September 2014 was at 0.59. So I'd made a lot of progress. So I'm hoping to be optimized when I get my next test done uh, next month. Now, this mitochondrial functional profile was designed by a researcher in the UK and is run out of a specialist lab there. So I hope to bring that research on the show soon, as it's a pretty cool lab showing different parts of the mitochondrial function and what can need optimizing, you know. And it's also interesting, as I said, to look at the magnesium aspect of it if you're optimizing your mitochondria. So it's another reason we should look at magnesium beyond all of the cool stuff that Caroline discussed today. I want this show really to come from as much from you as, as me. So if there are guests that you want on the show, if there's specific topics that you want me to get people to talk about, like find a really cool expert to talk about, you can actually help me stay on the pulse of what's going on out there and help me find guests by like just shooting me an email. You can shoot me an email at Damien, D-A-M-I-E-N, at thequantifiedbody.net. Or you can just tweet to me on Twitter. I am biohacks, B-I-O. H-A-C-K-S on Twitter. And just let me know who you'd like on the show. Now, I'm really, really grateful for the time that the guests make to come on this show. It's, it's simply amazing. And you can thank them too, just by tweeting to them. 
I put their Twitter details on the show notes pages so that you guys can tweet to them and you can thank them for the great information they share on this show. It's, it's really outstanding having these amazing experts on the show each week and being able to talk to them and get this really accurate information on what we can do with biomarkers and what we can't. So please thank Caroline on Twitter for her appearance. Go to the show notes and click on the thank you link and write her a little message there. The guests really appreciate that type of feedback. It really helps them know that they're doing a great job in spreading this kind of information and helping others. If you haven't yet subscribed to the show on iTunes, what are you waiting for? This is going to be an awesome show. We're going to get into so much practical detail about these biomarkers and which ones it's actually worth using and which ones not. I'm the guinea pig. I get everything done. I see what kind of is actionable and what isn't actionable. And we get these expert guests telling us what is actionable and useful. And then we can find out really like the short list of things that are actually worth doing, the experiments, the tools, and uh, what we should track to make sure we're having an impact on our biologies and our lives. So subscribe on iTunes. You can do that easily by going to theQuantifiedBody.net forward slash iTunes, and it will like push you into the app and you just hit subscribe there and you're done. And then you'll see all of the awesome content coming up soon. Currently, we're putting episodes out about once a week, but we're going to be moving to twice a week, Tuesdays and Fridays. You know, so watch out for those on Tuesday and Fridays. We're going to have a lot more content coming. This show is basically a project to explore. I don't really know where this is going to end up or it's going. This space of quantification, of quantifying our biologies, is changing very, very fast and it's going to change faster as we go forward. So I'm really excited about all of that and how it's going to become more useful to us. But I really don't know where it's going to go. And this show is going to evolve over time. So if you have any feedback, any ideas, just throw them my way on what would be cool, what would be useful to you. Thanks for listening and keep the feedback coming. Keep your emails coming. I love talking to you, finding out what your needs are in this area and how I can help you out. To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at verquantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.